morning, church. It's good to see everyone. Good to see some new faces. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Ken. I have the privilege of serving as a teaching pastor here. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn to Genesis chapter 14. As we're making our way through this book, we come to this remarkable story, again, of Abram and Lot. As we discussed last week, as we noted in chapter 13 when we covered that, that there are three episodes to this Abram-Lot saga as we make our way through Genesis. The first we covered last week in chapter 13, where Abram and Lot discover that the land that they were in wasn't big enough for them both, and their herds and their flocks and their herdsmen. And so Abram lets Lot choose first which land he was going to take, and then Abram would take the leftovers. And so Um, In that, Lot chose the land east of Canaan, and Abram had the land of Canaan. So while Abram providentially was able to settle in the promised land as God had planned, Lot chose the land outside of Canaan. He chose to settle in the cities of the valley. And when we last saw him at the end of chapter 13, he had moved his tent Towards Sodom. He wasn't yet living in Sodom, but he had moved his tent closer to that city. This morning, we're going to see the second episode in this Abram and Lot saga. The third episode will come in chapter 19, when while Lot is rescued yet again, the city where he now resides, Sodom, is destroyed. So if Genesis chapter 14 were a play, there are two acts in this play. And this morning, we're just going to cover the first act. Um, I, gave, uh, I gave Bob a, a preaching plan for the next, man, the next like two or three months. So ambitious. I've already messed it up. Just like a few days later. So sorry, Bob. I try. I really do. But we're only going to have time for the first act this morning, the first 16 verses. The first act in those first 16 verses, we're going to see an invasion from an alliance of armies in the north, north of Canaan, north of the promised land. They're going to invade Canaan, and in part of that invasion, they're going to take Lot captive. They're going to kidnap Abram's nephew Lot. And lead him away in captivity, and there we're going to see this remarkable rescue of Lot towards the end of this act. So there are five scenes in Act 1, and I want to give them to you at the outset because we're going to use these scenes as kind of a framework to work through this story because it's, it's a bit confusing. We're going to see a lot of weird Hebrew names, and, we're gonna, and they're going to be interspersed here and there, and the story is going to seem all kind of jumbled. And so I want to lay out the scenes for us so that as we walk through it, we'll be able to make sense of what the story is all about. So scene one is in verses one through three, <clears throat> excuse me, and they serve to set the stage for this battle that's going to take place later in the chapel, chapter. So that's the setting of the stage. Scene two is verses four through seven, where Moses, the narrator, is going to take us back in time. And he's going to show us what happened that led up to this war. Why is there hostility now between this northern army and the southern kingdom? And then in scene 3, which is verses 8 through 10, that's going to be the the battle itself, the war. 
and this, the, the, the Canaanite kingdoms and peoples are going to be um, defeated in this war. And so the tension in the story is going to rise even more. That's not the end of the story. They're defeated in this war. And then scene four is the spoils of war. What the victors get, this invading army, when they defeat them, what happens? They take away the spoils of war, including Lot. And then scene five, verses 13 through 16, is this amazing rescue by Abram, where he goes off and he rescues his nephew Lot and defeats his captors. So let's pray and ask the Lord to speak to us as we walk through this story. God, we thank you so much for the privilege it's been this morning to worship you. We ask, Father, that it's been in spirit and truth that we've um, sought to worship you um, in song and in our hearts from a place that's been transformed by the gospel, a place inside of us that's been transformed by your grace in bringing us back into your kingdom. We pray, Father, that now that you'd speak to us through your precious, holy word. Lord, we pray that this would be more than just an historical account of a story that happened. But, Lord, that it would be something that rings true to our hearts and lives today in 2019. And that, Lord, it would be something that would give us hope to grow to be worshipers of you even more. That you might be glorified in us and through us as we live for you in faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, like last week, and because this story is kind of, it goes all over the place, I'm going to walk through each scene. I'm not going to read through everything and then go back through it. That might confuse us. So we're going to walk through each scene separately. So scene one is the first three verses. So we'll read through that first. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Ketalomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Birach, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Admah, Shemaber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea, <clears throat> that is the Salt Sea. So we'll stop there. That's the setting for the war, the battle that takes place here. So what's happening? Well, there are four kings that are listed there in verse 1 that are from Mesopotamia and all across Mesopotamia. We remember that Abram came out of Mesopotamia, Ur of the Chaldeans. He came from southeastern Mesopotamia. But these kingdoms that are mentioned, these nations that are mentioned there in verse 1 are everywhere from the Black Sea up around modern Turkey, all the way down to the other side of Mesopotamia where modern-day Iran is, and and all the way down around the Persian Gulf in that area. So a huge swath of land north of Canaan, north of the uh, Jordan River Valley. So that's where they come from. Um, And they are Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Ketalomer, king of Elam. He's kind of the ringleader here. And we'll see him mentioned several times in this passage. And Tidal, king of Goim. Now, these are four true kings. And they are the rulers of large nations up in that area. And they and their kingdoms are, they represent kind of a precursor to 
the great Babylonian empire because that's where, that's where the Babylonian empire was. They came out of that. So this is kind of a precursor to that. So they were very strong rulers and their armies were huge and ruthless and they, the kings themselves, were ruthless in their reign. And verse 2 says that they make war on these five kings in Canaan. So again, we're setting the stage for the war that's going to come later. Then he lists the five kings in Canaan. Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Admah, Shemabur, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. So these are the kings in the land where Abram and Lot both are. They separated in chapter 13, but these are kings of these, these area down where, where they are. Now, these are not so much true kings like the ones of the north are. These are more like mayors of cities. These are like really tiny kingdoms compared to the kingdoms of Mesopotamia. And likewise, their armies are very small and ridiculously overmatched by the Mesopotamian alliance of kingdoms and nations. And he tells us in verse 3 that all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea, that's the Dead Sea. So this is a foreshadowing. We see this gathering of these two alliances coming to battle in the valley south of the Dead Sea. So that's a foreshadowing of the battle that's going to come in later verses here. So that's the end of scene one. The stage is set there in the valley of Sidim. Now in scene two, in verses four through seven, now the narrator is going to take us back in time. And he's going to tell us what led to these hostilities. Why are they going down there? And what happened to lead to this great battle in the valley of Sidim? So we're told there in verse four, 12 years they had served Ketalomer, but in the 13th year, they rebelled. So for 12 years, these people of Canaan, particularly these five kings of Canaan, they serve Ketalomer. And that word serve means that they paid tribute to him. So he was kind of, he was the ruling guy of this area and they paid tribute to him. They were separate. They, they had their own sovereignty as little city states, but, but, but they were paying tribute to this great king Ketalomer. And in the 13th year, they got fed up. They had had enough. They were done with that, and so they rebelled, and they stopped paying tribute. Well, as you can imagine, Ketalomer is not going to stand for this. So in the 14th year, he begins this campaign of invasion down into Canaan. Look at verse 5. In the 14th year, Ketalomer and the kings who were with him, so these four kings from Mesopotamia, came and defeated a bunch of people who are listed here in verses 5 through 7. The Rephaim of, in Ashtoreth, Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Sheva, Kiriathaim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. Now, for the Hebrew scholars who are among us, please don't write me letters about my mispronunciation of these people and these places. We're just going to go with it. It's really not that important. So, Ketalomer and these three other Mesopotamian kings here, they invade Canaan. 
They leave Mesopotamia, they go down into Canaan, and they, and they invade, and they defeat all these groups of people who are listed here in verses 5 through 7. They defeat them all. So in response, the five Canaanite kings who are mentioned in verse 2, now they've got no choice. They have got to rally together, they've got to form an alliance, and they've got to defend Canaan, right? Because this invading army is wiping people out, and so the Canaanite kings... As small and as weak as their forces are, they've got to join forces to defend Canaan from this invading army from the north. And so that's what they do. They go to battle against, verse 9 tells us, list these four kings again. They go, go to battle against Ketalomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goem, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elisar. And then he tells us, four kings against five. But it's not as though the five kings have any advantage over the four. In fact, they are ridiculously outmatched by the four kings of the larger kingdoms of Mesopotamia. Verse 10 says, Now the valley of Sidim, this is that where they gathered to, uh, to do battle here. So now we're back where we were at the, at the end of the setting of the stage <clears throat> in verses 1 through 3. We're back at the Dead Sea. All right, so we've, we've done this, uh, this look back in time. We've seen why the hostilities happened because they came in, they invaded, and they started wiping out these people. So now we've got the, the armies of the north who are engaged now, ready to do battle against the armies of Canaan, the five Canaanite kings down there, and they're gathered together in the valley of the Dead Sea, south of the Dead Sea, ready to do battle. And... He tells us in verse 10, the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen bits. That's basically tar pits. So there's these tar pits there. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some, that is some of the soldiers, fell into these tar pits. And the rest fled to the hill country. So we're, we're, we're seeing what's happened, right? The five Canaanite kings get defeated. They're beaten in battle. And as they flee, some of the soldiers fall into these tar pits and die. But some of them flee to the hill country. So the war is over now. We're, we're, We're through scene three. The war is over. The battle's over. The Canaanite kings have been defeated. It looks like there's no hope for this invading army to be pushed back. Uh, there's, there's nobody to stop them at this point. So now we go on to scene four, the spoils of war. Look at verse 11. So the enemy, that's the Mesopotamian army who had invaded this area, the enemy take all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah, who are the defeated kings of Canaan. They took all their possessions and all of their provisions and went their way. Verse 12, they also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. So these victorious Mesopotamian kings, their armies, they win the battle, and so they take away the spoils of war. And the spoils of war include both possessions and provisions as well as people. And one of the people that, he take, that they take away is Lot, Abram's nephew. So now the fifth and final scene in verses 13 through 16 is the daring rescue of Lot. Verse 13 says, Then one who had, res- who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew. And by the way, this is the first and only time in the Bible that Abraham 
is referred to as a Hebrew. Typically in the, in the Old Testament, that word Hebrew is, is an ethnic identifier for the Jews, the Israelites. But in reality, it's a, it's a technical family name. It's a, it's a family terminology. It literally means son of Eber. Eber was one of the sons of Shem, who was one of the sons of Noah. And he's listed for us in chapter 11 in the table of nations. So Abram here is listed as one of the sons of Eber, a Hebrew And one of the soldiers from the army of either Sodom or Gomorrah or one of the five Canaanite kingdoms, one of those soldiers who who escaped, didn't fall into the tar pits, he survived, I guess fled to the hill country. He makes his way to Abram and he tells Abram what happened and in particular tells him what happened to his nephew, Lot. And Abram is still living in the same place where we left off at the end of chapter 13 by the Oaks of Mamre. So he came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, and Mamre is a person. He is uh, an Amorite. He's the brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. Verse 14, when Abram heard that his kinsman, that's Lot, when Abram heard that Lot had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Now, what we're going to see unfolding for us in this passage, and reality in this whole chapter, is a picture of Abram that looks very much different than the picture of Abram that we've had uh, thus far in this book. And really, the picture that we have of Abraham in all of the Bible. The picture that we have in this chapter is in stark contrast to this. Up to this point, he's been a nomadic farmer. He's been a a herder of sheep and cattle, livestock. But in this passage, he transforms into this military leader who valiantly leads this uh, expedition to go up against this vastly superior army in order to free uh, his nephew Lot. So it's, it's a very different picture of Abram that we have here uh, than we've seen thus far in this book. Verse 15, and he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. So in his rescue of Lot, Abram shows great courage. He shows uh, remarkable grace to go free Lot, Um, and he shows like surprisingly cunning military prowess here. He shows courage because this army that he's going out against is this four-nation alliance of these great armies from Mesopotamia. These armies who are vastly superior in size and skill and experience, battle-hardened warriors, Four huge armies who had already demonstrated their superiority by wiping out all the peoples of Canaan and all these kings, including the kings and kingdoms of Sodom and Gomorrah. And yet Abram, this shepherd from Ur of the Chaldeans, is going up against them with 318 hired men from his house. That had to take tremendous courage for him to leave his place of safety, Canaan, this promised land, to leave there 
and go up against this imposing enemy from Mesopotamia. So it showed great courage. It also demonstrated remarkable grace because remember what Lot had done in chapter 13. Lot did not deserve rescue here, did he? Lot had, had chosen, he had pridefully chosen the better part of the land. Instead of letting his uncle, his elder, choose first, he, he pridefully chose and he chose the better plot of land for himself. And he had moved out of the promised land. And he had moved out within temptation's reach of Sodom. Now in chapter 14, we're told that he's actually living in this depraved and wretched city. And so Abraham shows remarkable grace in going after and choosing to go rescue Lot. But Abram also shows here superb military prowess. I mean, he's, he's a farmer. He's a rancher, right? He, he raises sheep, not soldiers. And yet, look at the strategic military moves that he makes here in verse 15. First of all, prior to this, he makes smart allies, Right? He forms an alliance with Mamre and Eshkol and Anar. So he, he's forming an alliance like any good military leader would. And then he is, we're told that he divides his forces, which gives us the picture that he's sending some of his forces, like some platoons on this side, and he's sending some like a battalion over on this side. Like he's trying to outflank his enemy. And then he attacks under cover of darkness. So he's attacking at night. So these are the kind of shrewd military combat maneuvers that you might expect from a skilled and experienced general. And yet he is just a nomadic rancher. How did he even know how to do these things? Well, we don't know, but we do know that when we left him at the end of chapter 13, he was worshiping again. He was building altars and he was trusting his God again. So what happened? What was the result? Well, amazingly, he defeats them. And then he pursues them. Again, this is so unlike the Abram that we've come to know in this chapter or in this book thus far. Enlisting soldiers, assembling an army, making shrewd combat maneuvers, and then not letting his enemy escape, but pursuing after them all the way through Canaan. And then finally bringing all the possessions and all the people that were taken out of Canaan, bringing them all back, including his nephew, Lot. Verse 16, then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman, Lot, with his possessions and the women and the people. So, that's the end of Act 1 of the story in chapter 14. Uh, an an in, uh, invasion by a foreign army from the north, terrorizing the land, cutting a swath of destruction through the land, defeating the king, kings and kingdoms who were there, taking Lot off, cat, kidnapping him, holding him captive, and then Abram, the unlikely hero of chapter 14, gathering together his own little force of people and going up against this enormously large and um, strong and skilled um, army from the north and defeating them, defeating Lot's captors and freeing him from his captivity. 
So that's the end of Act 1. So what's our takeaway? What's our takeaway from Act 1 of this chapter? And I want to spend the rest of our time this morning really trying to unpack how, how we bring application to an historical, historical narrative like this in Scripture. Because we're going to see lots of them in the book of Genesis. And so I want us to unpack how we are to look at a passage of Scripture like this and bring application. It's exciting, right? It would make for a good movie. It's, it's like a grand adventure. But how do we bring application to our lives? What is the point of God keeping this story, this historical account in Scripture so that we have it today and we read it as God's Word. What is he trying to tell us here? Well, as we've seen already in Genesis, and as we'll continue to see as we unpack this book in the coming months, our application of a text like this lies on two different planes. One plane is a moralistic plane. It's kind of on the surface. How we are to live as a result of this? Is there something that we ought to do as a result of this? But then underneath that, deeper than that, is application on a redemptive plane. So we we have to look at both of those planes. And focusing on either one of them to the exclusion of the other is going to give us an incomplete picture of what's going on here and what God intends to teach us through this. I don't actually like the terminology of a moralistic plane. It makes it sound like it's legalistic or somehow opposed to grace. But as we make our way through Scripture, we're going to see all kinds of moralistic application. The Ten Commandments themselves are moralistic in a certain sense. And so when they say, thou shalt not have any gods before me, and thou shalt not make for thyself an idol, or thou shalt honor your mother and father. Those are moralistic commands. And part of our application to them should be to obey them, to obey those moralistic commands. But the application of a moralistic command or the application of Scripture on a moralistic plane, while it's not bad, it's incomplete without the application of Scripture also on a redemptive plane. And I I hope to demonstrate that to you this morning. So the Bible gives us all kinds of moralistic applications, but we need to look underneath them for the redemptive application as well. Let me give an example. Any study of the Ten Commandments. So there there are moralistic commands They're commanding us to do things and not do things. They are moralistic imperatives, and we ought to obey them when they tell us to do things and not do things. But any study of those sorts of uh, commands that, that doesn't also look at how those commands fit within the broader framework of God's redemptive plan in history is an incomplete study of the Ten Commandments. We've got to approach it from both standpoints. So while we can start with those moralistic imperatives, you know, thou shalt do this, thou shalt not do that, that's fine, and we should obey those, but we've got to dig deeper. We've got more work to do in order to fully understand those texts. Why did God give Israel the Ten Commandments? What is God saying to us, especially when he knows that we will be unable to keep those commandments? How do we view the Ten Commandments through the lens of the promise of a redeemer 
who would come and crush the head of the serpent. How do we read those commandments? How do we read that passage of scripture through the lens of the cross and the empty grave? So there is application on a moralistic plane, but there's a deeper plane, a deeper plane of redemptive application. So again, while I'm not a big fan of the term moralistic, maybe you'll help me, you'll come up with a better term by the time we finish this because we've got lots of moralistic application to make in Genesis, but for now we'll just stick with that word. So what's the moralistic application of Act 1? It is, I believe, that it can be, it can demonstrate faithfulness to God to help people who need help. Very, very simple. It can be a demonstration of faithfulness to God to help people who need help. Like Abram, we should, in fact, look to come to the aid of those who are suffering, those who are oppressed, those who are hurting and in need and in need of rescue around us. We should look to help them and come to their aid, regardless of whether they deserve it or not. The psalmist says in Psalm 72, verse 4, May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. Well, Abram had heard about the oppression of the Canaanites and in general, and in particular, the oppression of his, son, his nephew Lot. As soon as he heard about Lot's kidnapping, he didn't waver. He assembled a posse and he went after them no matter what it would cost him. Because this was, this was him going on this rescue mission at great risk to himself as well as to those who went with him. Because the odds were clearly stacked against him. He and 318 of his hired servants hardened alliance of armies of much larger, much vaster kingdoms who were superior in size and skill and experience and had already wiped out the people and kingdoms of that land. And yet Abraham didn't hesitate. Lot needed help, and so he went out to help him, regardless of what it might cost him. And I think we see in here a demonstration in his trust of God. That, that, that God was going to watch over him, God was go- that if, if this was going to succeed, it would be up to God. Remember back in chapter 12, part of the covenant to Abraham, part of the promise that was made to Abraham is, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And so part of this is him banking on God's promises. Ketilomer and the Mesopotamian armies had dishonored Abram by taking his nephew away. And so in part, Abram here was trusting in God to, for, that he would keep that part of the covenant to curse him who dishonored you. To say nothing of God's promises to Abraham to make of him a great nation. And he still didn't have any kids. He still didn't have a son. And he was still old and so was his wife. And she was still barren. And there was absolutely no human logic for him to expect that he was going to have a son. But if he's going to go off to war and die in war, then certainly that promise isn't going to be kept. And so this is, again, an example here. So Abram is growing in his faith, right? We've seen him struggle. We've seen him make a turn and and return to worship. And he's, he's growing in his faith here. And he's still going to make mistakes. I hope we find encouragement in that. 
He's still going to make some mistakes. He's still going to be boneheaded. He's going to stop trusting God. He's going to take matters into his own hands. But he's growing. He's, he's making progress here. He's, he's trusting God in this. So how, how might we implement that kind of application, that kind of moralistic application to our lives? Simply put, we too should help people who, are, who need help around us. We should look for opportunities to help people who are hurting and oppressed and suffering and in need of rescue. And in a world like ours, filled with sin and war and natural disaster, there are always opportunities for us to do that and display the love of Christ in that way. I can't think this week, I can't think of a more appropriate way for us to consider putting feet to this lesson than for us to think about how to serve the people of the islands of the Bahamas, right? I mean, we all were, were glued to our television sets and our, and our uh, smartphones this week with rapt attention as this massive Category 5 hurricane spins off the coast of Africa and races through the Atlantic and then just squats on the Bahamas for like two days with nearly 200-mile-an-hour winds. And we, and we start seeing the, the effects of that and how it just ravaged that island nation. And we don't even know what all the effects are, right? We're, we're told hundreds, maybe thousands, um, are still unaccounted for and pre- presumed possibly dead. 70,000 families are homeless now. They don't have a home. So incredible suffering uh, just south of us in this neighboring island nation. So we should consider, what, you know, what, what should we do? What can I do to mobilize the troops and send aid to them and help them and, and help those who are doing the searching and rescuing of those who need rescue and feeding those who are hungry because they don't have any food and giving water to those who don't have any fresh water now because it's gone. This is one of those times where, in fact, I'm proud that I'm a Southern Baptist because Southern Baptists are very well known for their response to natural disasters like this. Um, if something happens in the United States, the disaster response from Southern Baptists um, is uh, vast and diverse. One of the things that they're known for doing is uh, sending feeding units uh, to places that are hit by hurricanes and natural disasters and things like that. And uh, there, there, there are lots of disaster relief agencies out there, the Red Cross and so forth, Southern Baptist disaster relief is one of the biggest. And when they go to a place like this to feed, I mean, leave it to Southern Baptists to feed people, right? I mean, we know about food. But um, they typically are the ones who own that entire process, feeding not just the survivors, but the first responders who are there uh, working on search and rescue and so forth. Um, ben serves on a disaster relief team, goes out in places he's been trained uh, with, with, he gets out with his uh, chainsaw and goes and helps places that have been hit by this. So there's a, there's a huge response to things like this. The international arm of disaster relief is called Baptist Global Response. And just really by way of application to this passage, um, I would commend to you their website, GoBGR. Uh, BGR stands for Baptist Global Response, GoBGR.com. And just read about their response to Hurricane Dorian and how they're, they've already got assessment teams that are on the ground working with authorities trying to figure out how people like us in the states can help and send aid to a place like this. So I'd commend you to go to that website 
but this, is, this will be a great application to the moralistic lesson from Abram's life in this story that we help people who need help, regardless of how much it affects us and how much it costs us. That's what Abram did for Lot. And by the way, Abram does this not because Lot is this fine, upstanding young man that deserves rescue. Lot doesn't deserve rescue in this story. He did absolutely nothing to deserve rescue. If anything, he snubbed his nose at Abraham and went off and abandoned him to, to live this independent life outside of Canaan. And yet, Abraham demonstrates tremendous grace and goes on this rescue mission to bring him back, not holding a grudge, but being a servant, putting that towel over his arm, and being that one to go and rescue him, even though he had snubbed him. So sometimes our application of a truth like this might mean for us to go on those search and rescue missions for people who don't deserve to be rescued. Maybe they snubbed their nose at us. Maybe they wronged us in some way. Or maybe they're just dealing with the consequences of sinful and unwise choices. But for whatever reason, they find themselves in need of rescue. They don't deserve rescue. They don't deserve our help. But it is a tremendous display of godly grace to go after them anyway, like Abram did. So just think for yourself in your own life. Is there a situation where someone has wronged you, someone has um, snubbed their noses at you for whatever reason, um, They don't deserve rescue, but they find themselves in a place where they need rescue. They're desperate for it. They don't deserve it from you, but what an incredible display of God's grace it would be to go after them anyway and display grace to rescue them. But I hope you've been listening because as we look at Abram and this selfless sacrifice to leave Canaan, to leave the promised land, and go after his kin who had been kidnapped, who was held captive by the enemy and hopeless in that predicament. He couldn't save himself. Abraham risks everything and leaves Canaan on this rescue mission to, to defeat that enemy who had ruthlessly attacked his kin And was holding him captive. Don't we see in Abraham a picture of Christ? Abraham in this story is is a type of Christ. And this is where we move from the moralistic plane now to the redemptive plane of seeking to apply this passage of Scripture. Typology is a literary quality of scripture it's a kind of prophetic symbolism where people and places and events in the old testament correspond to or have fulfillment in something in the new testament they're a type of what is to come like when the israelites were delivered out of captivity in egypt by going through the Red Sea. We're told in 1 Corinthians 10 by the Apostle Paul that that rescue through the Red Sea was a type of baptism. 
It was a, it was a, a prophetic foreshadowing, um, a prophetic symbolism of a kind of baptism. In the same way, the Passover meal in the Old Testament is a type of the meal that we share together today, the communion meal, the Lord's Supper. And as we mentioned when we talked about the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper itself is a type of that meal that we'll share together in glory at the marriage supper of the Lamb. When we were going through the book of Romans, we heard Paul refer to Adam as a type of Christ. It was prophetic symbolism. That's what Adam was. It was prophetic symbolism and incomplete picture, if uh, if you will, of something that was coming later. And he actually uses the word type in that passage. Listen to Romans 5 verse 14. Paul says, Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Paul was saying there that Adam was a type of Christ. The the, the first Adam was an incomplete picture of the last Adam who was to come in the person of Jesus Christ. And in this chapter, Genesis chapter 14, in the whole chapter, we encounter two characters that serve as a type of Christ, a kind of Christological typology, prophetic symbols of Christ that exist in their own story and their own historical account for perfectly good reason. So it's not allegory. It's not like this didn't happen and it's just telling us about Jesus. It's real stuff that did happen in a historical account. But it's a, it's a picture of that which is to come. Jesus says of himself in um, Luke chapter 10, verse 10, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's what we see in Abram here. So, like Abram, Jesus saw us in our need. He saw us kidnapped by the enemy, held captive by our enemy, sin and Satan. He saw us in our hopeless condition. And so, he left his heavenly Canaan at great personal risk And he took up arms spiritually to defeat our enemies, sin and Satan, to free us and bring us back to Canaan to be with him. He says again in Luke 10.10, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So Jesus came on his own rescue mission to rescue us. And like Lot, we we don't deserve to be rescued. We don't deserve this rescue mission on the part of Jesus. Like Lot, we had chosen to live outside the land of Canaan. We had chosen independence from God. We had snubbed our noses at him. And yet, being lost and hopeless, Jesus graciously embarks on this dangerous rescue mission, defeated our enemies, freed us from captivity, and brought us back into God's kingdom. I don't know about you, but that'll preach. That's some good stuff. Now, whenever we see this kind of typology in Scripture, especially if it's Christological in nature, that it's a type of Christ, it's it's an incomplete picture of Jesus. There are types, 
as we read through the, uh, the, the book of Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews points to all kinds of type that were just a shadow of the things that are to come. But when we run across Christological typology, we need to remember it's not just about seeing Jesus in the Old Testament. It's not just about seeing him in a story. God is using those stories to teach us something about Jesus, to teach us something about our Redeemer, to appreciate him more fully for who he is and what he accomplished for us. A good example of this is what Jesus did in Luke chapter 24. If you remember the story in Luke chapter 24, uh, Jesus was crucified and the disciples began to kind of spread Um, His primary disciples stayed there in Jerusalem, but some of the followers of Jesus began to spread out from there, began to leave, began to abandon that area. Two of them were on a road leading to Emmaus. And as the story goes, Jesus had risen from the dead. He appears to them, but he doesn't let them know who he is. He's just a dude walking on the road to Emmaus. And these two disciples of Jesus are reading the scriptures And so Jesus, his identity veiled to them, hidden to them, he offers to teach them the scriptures. And so Dr. Luke tells us in chapter 24, verse 27 of that gospel account, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In other words, there were were things in the words of Moses including Genesis, and all of the prophets that were teaching us about Jesus. But beyond that, typology seems to be aimed not primarily at our head, but at our heart. Because when, when, when we hear the, the type, when we hear the story, we're, we're drawn into that, and we identify with that character. And we've been identifying with Abram up to this point, Right? And so we identify with that character in the historical account. And then when we find out that it's pointing us to Christ, our affections get drawn to Christ to love him more, to serve him more, and to glorify him more. And so it seems as though uh, these typologies are aimed not primarily at our, at our head, but at our heart, at our affections to, to draw us into a deeper intimacy with Christ, a, a deeper more soulful appreciation for who God is and what he's done. This also happened to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. After after Jesus opened up the scriptures and revealed where it was teaching about the Messiah, then they went into town. And remember, his, his identity is still hidden from them. They don't know that it's Jesus and then they decide to celebrate with communion. They, they, he serves them bread and wine. And then it's like scales fall from their eyes. And they recognize that it is Jesus. And then immediately Jesus vanishes. And they're left there wondering, what in the world just happened? Listen to what they say to themselves in verse 32. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us? while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures. So when when Jesus was showing these 
two disciples, the things concerning themselves in the words of Moses and the prophets, including the Christological typologies in Genesis, when he does this, their hearts are burning within them, which is to say that their, their affections were stirred to a white-hot passion for the Lord Jesus Christ, to love Jesus more and appreciate Jesus more. And, and we should remember here that they still don't know it's Jesus teaching them. They think it's just a dude, but he's opening the scriptures and he's using the, the, the Old Testament to point to him, to point to the Messiah, to point to the Christ, the anointed one who had been put to death on the cross. They didn't even know about his resurrection yet. And their hearts are burning within him. The, the, their affections are stirred into a white, hot passion to love Jesus to a greater degree. And church, the same thing ought to happen to us when we encounter these kinds of Christological typologies in places like we do in Genesis 14. We're, we're drawn into this story of Abraham, this nomadic sheep farmer turned general, selflessly and humbly sacrificing himself in order to rescue the undeserved lot. And he frees this undeserved lot from captivity and brings them back to Canaan. And then we realize that in Abram, we're seeing a picture of Jesus, the carpenter turned redeemer, who also selflessly and humbly sacrificed himself and went on this desperate rescue mission from his Canaan to fight against our enemies and our captors, to free us from captivity by grace through faith and bring us back to where we belong in God's kingdom. And in recognizing this, our hearts ought to burn within us. Abram being put forth here as a type of Christ is intended by God to stir our affections into this passion and desperate longing for more of Christ and appreciation for who he is and greater love for him. But the cool thing is this isn't the only Christological typology that we see in Genesis chapter 14. We'll also see an example of this in Act 2 next week. So he's defeated the enemy. Amazingly, this vastly superior enemy has been defeated and Lot and the possessions are, are coming back now. They're, they're, they're brought back into Canaan. And as he comes back to town, Abram is met by two kings who want to honor him. One of the kings is the king of Sodom. And he will be put forth as a type of Satan. The other is this strangely mysterious character known as Melchizedek. He's also a king. He's the king of Salem. And he too honors and blesses Abraham. But it turns out that that king is not just a king. He's also a priest. And in Melchizedek, we'll see both through the psalmist David as well as through the writer of Hebrews, we will see a type of Christ who is also a king, who is also a priest. Until then... Let us on this moralistic plane seek to help people who need help around us. 
And may our hearts burn within us with this white-hot affection for our Redeemer as we see him pictured in texts like this. But now, here's the cool part. Now, we make this moralistic application in a deeper way because now we understand the redemptive application. You see, the redemptive application fuels the moralistic application. If, if we skip the redemptive application, if we gloss over the redemptive plane, then all we're left with is moralistic application. Do this, don't do that. And so we'll walk away from a story like this, and maybe you've even heard it taught and, and preached this way, that we too should go help people like Abraham. Let's go help people. And that's good, but are we doing it for the right reasons? And how long is that going to last anyway if it isn't undergirded by this redemptive plane? See, the redemptive application fuels the moralistic application because now we're helping others who are in need out of a heart that's been transformed by the gospel. We're, We're helping people now in need out of the thankfulness of an undeserved sinner who has been rescued by God's grace. And so... Let's obey the moralistic plane, but out of a redemptive motive for the glory of God. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for how you have preserved your word so that we can open up the pages of this ancient document and know this to be true and your very breath. And we thank you so much that you've recorded this incredible story for us and what it shows us about our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, what it shows us about us, the undeserved sinner who had rebelled against you. Father, we pray now for those people who may be in this room, maybe they're in our home, maybe they're in our workplace, but they've never placed faith in Christ. They are still that undeserved sinner. And they are hopelessly held captive by a powerful enemy, sin. And they deserve judgment God, we pray that you would reveal the good news to them, perhaps even through this story, that you, our Father, sent Jesus the carpenter, who is our redeemer, to lead this rescue mission, to defeat the enemies of our soul, sin and Satan, to free us from their captivity by grace through faith so that we might be restored to be your worshipers, so that we might have a home back in your kingdom and brought back safely by you. So God, we pray that for that person, for that undeserved sinner, God, would you give them the faith right now to trust in Christ alone, to not trust in their own ability to try to free themselves from captivity, but to trust in Jesus Christ, crucified and risen again as their only hope for rescue from what they deserve. God, we thank you so much for what you've done for us in Christ. May we never graduate from that good news, and may it infiltrate every corner and recess of our heart and life, so much so that it fuels even our desire to serve you by serving those who are in need around us. Be glorified through your church, we pray, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.